Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 15. If you're using the Pew Bible, we're on page 874. 874. We've been spending some time in Luke chapter 15 the last several weeks. We have uh, four weeks to go, including this morning. And now we're going to be launching into this story, familiar story, of the prodigal son. As Jesus will develop this story, he is speaking directly to the audience in, uh, who is present there with him on this occasion. And you can remember from several weeks ago, we've kind of rehearsed this or reminded ourselves of this the last several times, that Jesus is addressing the crowd. He's addressing specifically the scribes and the Pharisees who are there who are grumbling at the fact that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. How is it that somebody who claims to be holy, who, can't, who claims to be this righteous prophet, this person who represents God, how could it be that God could mix it up with sinners? How could it be that, that a prophet or a religious leader, as Jesus claims to be, could, could associate in any way with the filth and the dregs of society as the scribes and the Pharisees thought that Jesus was doing. And Jesus is telling a series of parables, and now the third that we'll begin this morning. The goal of these parables, of course, is to help emphasize the point that Jesus and heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents more than the 99 righteous individuals who need no repentance. As Jesus will develop the story, he wants to now start by inventing the worst possible sinner that anybody in the audience could have ever imagined. The details of the story that Jesus will will provide for us may be somewhat elusive for us because of living in the 21st century, but they would have been felt and known, appreciated, and grasped by those there living in the first century. We're going to take our time move through the story little by little so we can develop this story for ourselves and come to appreciate the magnitude of what Jesus is trying to describe. And essentially what he wants his listeners to hear is this description of a sinner who in their minds, both sinners and tax collectors and scribes and Pharisees, would designate as a person who is beyond hope, somebody who essentially is irredeemable, Somebody who has gone so far has sinned so much that the rebellion has taken them so far there is not a chance that they could ever come back to God. It's this kind of sinner that Jesus is trying to describe to help his audience know the heart of God in rejoicing over sinners. And not just casual sinners, not just marginal sinners, but the worst of the worst that they could ever Imagine, if, if, the, if the Father can rejoice over these individuals, over this son, then certainly the Father can rejoice over me. That's the point of the parable that Jesus will begin to tell here with the prodigal son. But as we think about this together and kind of compare this story and, and, and our perception, as it were, of rebellion... And I've entitled this message this morning, The Portrait of a Rebel. That's what Jesus is trying to do in this story. He's trying to paint this picture of this rebel heart 
And if this individual can receive forgiveness, then certainly I can receive forgiveness too. But how would you describe a rebel? How would you begin to to characterize somebody as a rebel who is hostile towards God? What are the hallmarks of rebellion? How would you explain to somebody in a gospel situation as you're sharing the good news with somebody about salvation? How would you how would you describe rebellion? What what are the the hallmark features that you would bring to the table? You know, we're living in a culture right now where all the the rules are being rewritten, as it were. We're living in a culture right now where where, where all the things that, that were once accepted as natural and as obvious are being challenged, are being questioned, are being rewritten, rediscovered, retooled, as it were. More and more, the generation in which we live represents what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in a culture where everything now is upside down, where everything is being questioned. The things that were once good are, are now, are now uh, described as evil, and the things that were once evil are described as good. How did we get to this place? How has the, the culture around us eroded in such a way? Well, the Apostle Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1. He describes this ever-continuing drift away from God, and that God, in judging the earth, actually gives them up. He gives them up to their heart's desire. And as we consider the judgment of God, as we consider, actually, the the love of God, I, I want you to understand, it is the love of God that stands in our way. It is the love of God, as we see in Hebrews chapter 12, where God disciplines his own sons. And if he doesn't discipline you, then you're illegitimate. You don't belong to him, after all. And so Romans 1 describes the judgment of God in this way, in these terms. That God doesn't condemn or punish in the moment, but God gives culture up to do the very things that are on their heart. Notice with me, three times we are, it's described that God gives them up. Romans 1, 24 says this, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. A culture who is embraced impurity, who calls impurity good, and God gives that culture up to that debased mind to to do exactly what's on their heart, to do what they think will gratify their flesh. He goes on in verse 26, he says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The very things that are natural, that are built into the design and fabric of creation and being created in the image of God, now there is this next step, as it were, 
of, of moving in abandoning the standard that God has created. So God gives them up. It comes to a head in verse 28. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This word in verse 28, debased, is without acceptance, without approval. It's that which is examined and fails the test. It describes the kind of mind which in, in which nothing is approved. Nothing is, is in alignment. They're not accepting any of the sound judgment that has been built into the fabric of conscience. You might call this group of individuals given to insanity. And probably no other time, at least in, 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 in my uh, recollection, have I ever used the word insanity to describe the decisions that are being, being made all, all around us in these days. The darkness that has come, the lacking of any spiritual sensitivity, this calloused heart, hardness and blindness and depravity. More and more, I believe, we fit the description of of the generation just before the flood is described in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 where it says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. We are not far away from that today. But before we get too smug, before we decide to give ourselves a pass, before we look at our lives and evaluate our lives against the backdrop of this repulsive culture, Jesus would have us evaluate our lives with respect to his standard and not against the backdrop of the wickedness that's in our way. Paul will go on to describe this depraved mind, this final giving up. He will begin to describe the, the heart of those who also have and share this same bent towards wickedness. Notice, beginning in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. How did that make the list? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And, and so because of our heart that is bent and inclined towards these things, the judgment that is pronounced is found in the next chapter, just a few verses away. Romans chapter two, verse five says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you're honest with yourself this morning, you will see yourself in that list. If you're honest with yourself in examining your own heart, you will see how far away you have moved from God. 
And, and even for us who have a relationship with God, who've come to him in asking for forgiveness and repentance of our sin and have enjoyed the cleansing power of the word of God in the Holy Spirit, there are those times where our life reflects those, that old nature, that sinful heart that bent towards the things that are opposed to God. All of us this morning stand in a need of a faithful, loving, consistent, forgiving God. All of us need to depend on daily mercy from God to enter back into the intimacy of that fellowship with him that is available to us through faith in Christ, who rejoices over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who need no repentance. When our heart is set against Repentance, and we see in ourselves righteousness as we prop ourselves up and don't come to terms with, with where we really stand as it relates to our rebellion against God. When we get to that place of becoming and setting ourselves as a Pharisee, we reject the very grace of God that has been given to us, extended to us, to continue to enter in and enjoy the benefits of God's forgiveness. It happens when we regard our sin as acceptable. We, those, those acceptable sins versus those blatant, rebellious sins. We tend to give ourselves a pass. But Jesus is telling this parable to help draw us in, to help invite us into the joy of experiencing forgiveness, experiencing cleansing, and experiencing renewed relationship with him. This morning we begin this story of the prodigal son which we'll talk about this morning, kind of dig in and, and develop the first several verses. And then for the next three weeks, we're gonna continue to work through this amazing story. For those of you who are interested in kind of digging a little deeper, uh, there's a, a, a book that I'm kind of drawing from. John MacArthur has written a book called A Tale of Two Sons. It really is the culmination of 40 years of ministry, his ministry uh, of faithfulness at Grace Community Church. He, they, the, their church kind of finished off um, his study of, of moving through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and he finished up with uh, the Gospel of Luke. And so after 40 years of ministry, he, they came to, to the Gospel of Luke and to this story. And so this is a composite of 40 years of faithful ministry. I would also encourage you to, to join the, uh, the connect group for the sermon study and, and every week there's a, a study guide as you can see on the right hand side a study guide I, I would just encourage you to, to dig in and maximize your experience because there are a lot of things about this parable that are just gonna go over our heads but if we, if we, if we dig in and we, we can understand what would have been known in culture we can really appreciate what is happening here but turn your attention to Luke chapter 15 I want to read this parable in its entirety to kind of set the context for our study today, and uh, then we'll, we'll dig into the first several verses together. It says, Luke 15, verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have, have more than enough uh, bread, but I, go, I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts, that we would see the truth that is contained within this story, within the page of scripture, that you would apply it to our hearts and lives, that we would be changed, that we would leave this place as those who have renewed affection for Jesus Christ, a greater awareness of our sin, and a heightened zeal to share the gospel with those around us who need a Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is developing this story with skill. He begins by describing this sinner, this young Son, this younger brother, and he, he describes him in the first several verses from 11 to 14 in two ways. First, we're going to see his shameless demand, and then we're going to follow it up with his shameful deeds. Both of these are ways in which Jesus is trying to create, design this worst sinner imaginable to this audience. In verse 11, just for review. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger son, uh, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. We see here his shameless demand. 
And Jesus, in describing him, will step us through the, the details of this text. And with every turn of a sentence and every detail that is supplied, there is a new way in which this son screams rebel. First, we see his disregard for his heritage. His disregard for his heritage. The story begins with a family, a father and two boys. Of course, both of these boys represent the individuals in the crowd. The younger son is meant to represent those tax collectors and sinners. The older son, of course, is meant to represent these grumbling scribes and Pharisees. There were details that are contained within this story that, that help us understand the, 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 the means uh, that this father had. We don't know all the details, but, but as this story will unfold, we'll see more of the details related to this father, his occupation, the wealth and his position within the community. And the assumption is that this father and his two sons are people of distinction and wealth. And his sons, still closely associated with him, are, are old enough to take responsibility in, on the farm or in the vineyards or, or in the occupation of the father that they're old enough to manage the property but still youthful in their, in their prime. Immediately after introducing this family, the younger son takes center stage. Already, the story is introducing something unexpected because younger sons were almost never thought about. Attention was always given to the older son. It was the, the older son who, who would receive the, the double share of blessing. It was the older son who would really carry on the family legacy. The, the younger son was, was often just an afterthought. But here, Jesus, in, in developing this story, is bringing the younger son front and center. He says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. This total disregard for his heritage this younger son's attitude was entirely inappropriate. From the earliest days of Israel, the laws that, that governed the handing off of heritage from one generation to the next was, was firmly embedded in the Mosaic law. It was, it was forbidden that lands would be sold, that property would be turned over to other uh, families. And so this young man, in, in asking for his inheritance, asking for his heritage early, would be to call that into question. It's clear that this younger son had not an ounce of gratitude for all of the faithful labors of all the, all the previous fathers that had gone before him. He lacked patience and discipline. And, and what, what was worst of all, he lacked any authentic love for his father. He was abandoning his roots, turning his back on everything that was considered important in that day, rejecting long-standing values. The older son would receive two-thirds, and the younger son would receive one-third, because he is receiving just a portion of the inheritance while the older son receives a double portion. So imagine that he gets one portion and the other two go to his older brother. But this young, younger son was not interested in, in any part of long-term legacy, this, this compounded interest, as it were. He wanted his cut now. He's like Esau 
in Hebrews chapter 12 who sold his birthright early, demonstrating his immoral in his unholy heart. He wanted to cash out. He wanted to spend his inheritance on his own pleasures. He wanted to be free of this uh, presumed bondage that, that he was under. He was fed up with waiting for what was coming to him. He wanted to get it now. He wanted to finance his rebellion. He didn't care who he stepped on. He didn't care who he offended along the way. He, he wanted to get his cut. He dishonored. Dis, he uh, disregarded his inheritance. Next, we see that he disrespected his father. He disrespected his father. This was perhaps the most disturbing for a son in that culture to request his inheritance early was tantamount to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so I could move on with my life. I wish you no longer existed so we could cash out now. I want what's coming to me. I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with our family. I want nothing to do with this village. I want nothing to do with my heritage and my legacy. I want to cash in now, and I wish you were just out of the way. In a culture where honor was so important, honor your father and your mother any son who made such a breathtaking request from a healthy father would have been regarded as the lowest kind of rebel. This would have been scandalous in first century Israel. Not only was he implying that he wished his father dead, but he was in effect severing all family connections. I want nothing to do with this family. I want nothing to do with the legacy that has been given to me. I want nothing to do with the people of Israel. Consider for a moment pulling that, importing that into our day and age. Those of you who are in your uh, young to middle to late 50s, imagine one of your kids coming to you and saying, hey dad, I'd like you to cash out your 401k. I'd like you to sell your home so you can liquidate those assets and give a portion of that to me. And, and, and all of the stocks and bonds that you might have, your savings account, you need to cash it out. Let me have it. I want to be on my way. How do you suppose that's going to go over even today? What kind of strain do you think that might put on your relationship? How do you suppose the people who know your family will begin to perceive that younger young man and your response to that man in this scandalous request that he's, that he's making, this demand that he's making. Apparently, none of this, none of this dignity, none of this honor mattered to this younger son. He was reckless. He wanted and craved his freedom. He wanted out. He wanted his independence. What would have happened in a culture like this, in order for the father to, to save his dignity, his honor, he needed to be able to transfer dishonor and shame back to the son. This is the, the normal flow in which this should have happened. And that normally would have taken place at the city gate in the company of everyone who lived in that community and a hard slap at the very least on the son's face as a public shaming of this son and a public dis, um, dismembering of this son from the family, disowning of this son from the family. It would have led to even, 
in some cases, a funeral procession, as it were, a mock funeral, where this son would be essentially, figuratively, symbolically, not just disowned, but considered dead to the family. Notice verse 24. My son was dead. That kind of symbol would mark first century Israel, reckoned as dead. What this younger son should have received was a public stoning. That's what was called for, for for this kind of rebellion in first century Israel. The, The law called for this kind of rebellion to be met with serious consequences. So Jesus could hardly have painted a scenario that would have portrayed greater shame going to the son and also to the father. And we turn our attention in verse 12 to the division of the livelihood. Your, your notes say, say the division of land. You may scratch that out and just put division of, of livelihood there. In village life at the time, everyone knew everyone else's business. <laughs> if, if you've ever grown up in, in a small town, you know how that works. You, you know how reputation just kind of sticks. No matter how hard you work to, to fix those sins or those errors of the past, that they always seem to mark you. Oh, you're that person. It would have been true in, in this little town as well. And so the prodigal's rebellion was erecting this mountain of shame over the father. Sadly, for the father, there was nothing that he could do to, to cover or remove this shame short of publicly disowning his son. Any self-respecting dad in that culture would have naturally felt that he needed to disgrace his son as a way to save his own honor. How could he allow a shameful, dishonorable son to act this way? The only way to transfer the shame that would come to to him in how he responded to his rebel son was to, to make sure that everyone understood that you had no part in his rebellion. Instead, notice what the father does. Notice at the end of verse 12, and he divided the property between them. Here's where Jesus' story would have garnered a second gasp from the audience. Most of Jesus' listeners, particularly the Pharisees, would have seen this as a shameful act by the father in essentially condoning the behavior of his son, advocating this behavior, bowing to the pressure of his son, caving, as it were, to the son's demands. How could this father have no backbone and allow this son to be this rebellious. Just as a side note, this is not meant to be a manual for parenting, (laughs) but an illustration of the pursuing love of our Savior. The tender, faithful, enduring love of our Savior who seeks and saves the lost, who at times allows us to get away with rebellion in our own life, but will pursue us in that rebellion to call us back to himself. Those living in first century culture would have seen the father as a willing advocate to the son's rebellion, as an enabler, as it were, as one who condoned this behavior. Because the father in this story is the personification of Jesus, we we see in the father this enduring patient kindness and tenderness to his son in a willingness 
to, to lay down, to lay down and divide his wealth. Now we see this contrast. The father's devotion to his son stands as a contrast to the rebellion of the son himself. The father's actions demonstrated that he was truly a loving father, not a tyrant. He was willing to endure the pain of the spurned affections of his son, of the hostility of his son and kind of the underlying implication, I wish you were dead, and the father is still willing to divest himself. This word in the ESV, he divided his property between them. The word property is the word bios. It's, it's, it's a word that means life or livelihood. The reference to life is not an accident. He divided his life with his son. He laid down his life and his livelihood for his son. Does that sound familiar? He was willing to divest his life. He was willing to let go of his life. He was willing to lay down his life. His devotion and tenderness is on display. The son is experiencing, without even knowing it, the tenderness and affection of a father who is loyal in love to his son. We turn in verses 13 and 14 to his shameful deeds. I know that, again, in your, in your outline it has 11 and 12, but, but we're actually now turning to, to the next couple of verses, 13 and 14. We see this younger son's shameful deeds. And, and the story continues. If you didn't think it could get any worse, Jesus continues to, to amplify the picture and describe this, this young rebel man in light that would have shocked his audience. Verse 13 says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. At the very beginning, by gathering all that he had, we we find him liquidating his assets. All, All of the property, all of the heritage, all the crops, all the cattle, all the things that the father uh, would have and and would impart to him, there is this divestment of his assets in order to accrue the money so he can campaign his own rebellion or finance his own rebellion. This departure is treated as kind of a, a separate step in the narrative and he liquidated what he could. And, and, and you can understand that if you're liquidating for cash and you're doing it quickly, you're going to take pennies on the dollar. So this young man's recklessness has now taken him to, to the tipping point, as it were. Any of you who have had a, a garage sale <laughs> and you have these really precious things and, and, you, and you know what you paid for them, you know what they really are, are worth, at least in your mind, but, but depending upon the, those that, that actually come to your garage sale and the cash they're willing to pay will determine the price in which you're actually able to sell it for you, hang on to it for another 20 years. In this younger son's hurry, he's willing to take whatever price he gets. All of the inheritance that has been passed on from generation to generation, he neglects and sells for cash just so that he can be on his way. He settles for the best offer. 
in Luke chapter 16, which is that it's coming in, in, in just a few weeks, we, we find this example of a shrewd servant. And we, we find in this shrewd servant that he has essentially been fired from his job. And, and in order to, to make a quick uh, cash, he's willing to take 50% of the overall value, the cash value in some cases, and in other cases, 20% cash value of the thing that had been sold to this other individual just so that he can be on his way. This younger son, not only did he dishonor his father, but he unloaded his inheritance at pennies on the dollar. Decades of hard work, careful planning, proper management and saving now gone in a moment. We find also in verse 13, he departed to a far country. Notice at the very end it says, and he gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Remember that Jesus is telling this parable to, to, to a group of, 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 of Jews, both tax collectors and Pharisees. And, and, and in this culture, they would have known that, that any journey to a far country, considering how small Israel, would be a journey into Gentile, Gentile territory. Any distant land would be considered Gentile territory, Gentile country. It was unheard of for someone to consider permanent residence in a place like that. This would have been another detail involving horror in Jesus' hearers. Unthinkable that he would would move out of the promised land and journey by choice into Gentile territory. We've seen this rebellion that continues to, to, to escalate in his life. He's already disowned his family. He's already wished his father dead. He's already dishonored his forefathers. Now he makes his sin national and Godward. He wants nothing to do with the covenant people. He wants nothing to do with God's intended land of blessing. He wants nothing to do with the place of worship that was there in Jerusalem. He wants nothing to do with the, with the relationship that he would have in, in understanding the, the Mosaic law and being drawn into relationship that happens there in the temple. He wants nothing to do with the traditions. He wants nothing to do with anything that would restrict his freedoms. He wants out. He wants no accountability. And so he moves. This was a visible expression of his wicked heart. It really does represent the same heart that we saw or that we see in Jonah. In Jonah chapter one, verses one to three, Jonah, his heart is the same. His his rebel heart is, is echoed in this prodigal. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, here it is, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And in the gap between verses 3 and 10, you know the story. He boards this ship. The wind and the waves come. The, the sailors are, are, are desperate to find a way to, 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 to rescue their lives. And, and Jonah has this plan. Just throw me overboard. And verse 10 says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. 
Any departure from the promised land was a, was a departure from the presence of the Lord. It, it echoed this rebel heart, this antagonism against everything Jewish and everything that would have been Godward. Now his sin has gone, risen to the highest level. But what he considered to be freedom will now turn into bondage for him. We find next that he dispensed of all that he owned. We find at the end of verse 13, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The word is to waste his possessions. It's the, it's the Greek word for winnowing. It's, it's what would happen when they would throw the chaff and the, and the grain up into the air and the, the wind would blow and, and that, that chaff would blow off. It was this wasting away, this winnowing of his income. All of it was just blowing right away. Wasted in this reckless kind of living. To scatter abroad, to, to, to throw it away. His life would have pictured the tax collectors and sinners living in comfort, living for the flesh, wasteful, without restraint. The accusation of the older brother that we find in verse 30 of this parable is that he devoured his father's livelihood with harlots. Somehow, this young son's sin was so repulsive that even the Gentiles sent word back to his father on how repulsive this young man was. Jesus is painting this worst sinner. He's helping to see now what sin will inevitably lead to. One uh, pastor has said this, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin never delivers what it promises. Sin never delivers what it promises. It looks like freedom. It looks like ease. It looks like a way to enjoy all the things that your heart craves, but it inevitably, inevitably leads to bondage. The recklessness and foolishness of this young son is exposed, and now he experiences disaster, the disaster of his Decisions We find in verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. You've heard the adage, when it rains, it pours. And now this young man is experiencing the, the devastating consequences of his actions. The money is gone and now to escalate the problem, not only does he not have anything, nobody around him really has anything to help him with. The famine has come. It's been understood in that culture, especially for those living in Israel, that the stern hand of God would come with famine on those who were rebels. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the clear hand of God was now coming to bear on this young man's life. It must have felt like a divinely orchestrated payback for his sins. And you can bet that the scribes and Pharisees, now hearing this turn of the story, are rubbing their hands with glee. Their grimaces on their face. Ha, he finally is getting what he deserves. Finally, this story is going somewhere. Pharisees, their grumbling hearts in hating sinners. 
did not recognize that they were one of them. And that the grace of God that was extended to, to that, that group of sinners and tax collectors, those, those dregs of society, was, was the same grace that God was extending to them. They were just in much in need of repentance as the rest of the audience was. Next week, we're gonna pick up this story and carry it along. I would encourage you to, to grab a, a study guide on the way out and, and, and enter into this story with us. But it's important for us before we go this morning to, to see ourselves in, in this story. Who are you in this story? Are you the sinner in this story who has come to grips with your own unworthiness? Are, are, you, are you the sinner in this story who has come to realize that the grace of God has covered your rebellion and has offered a way for you to experience peace with God, forgiveness from God, cleansing from God that comes through faith and confession and repentance and turning to him. Have you experienced, enjoyed the benefits of God's cleansing forgiveness for lost people? Or perhaps this morning, Many of us, and I think especially is true for those of us who have grown in the church, grown up in the church, and, and maybe we, we've experienced a measure of God's grace for ourselves, but, but it is so easy for us when we grow up in the church to look down our nose on all the dregs of society and wonder how in the world could anyone be so defiled? I wonder... There's probably an active way that we might do that through a critical heart and through a judgmental um, actions. But, but probably most of us in this room are more guilty of a passive pharisaicalism. How, how many of us have lived in the communities in which we work or in which we live or, or, ha, or, or work in the jobs that we are in for a measure of time and, and, and for whatever reason, for whatever reason, the, the heart of the Father in this story and the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in pursuing lostness and entering into their world and, and calling them to enjoy the forgiveness of God for them is, is not something that we really care to do. Just uh, last week, when it was cold and snowy, one of the things that our family enjoys doing is, is just shoveling uh, sidewalks and uh, driveways in our community. And, and I would say to my shame, there was a family that lives a couple of houses down Caddy Corner from us who I met for the very first time. And they've lived there for three years. And I apologized to her. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I haven't met you yet. And it reflects in my own heart not a, an active, aggressive kind of hostility towards sinners, but, 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 a, but a passivity and, and not embracing what I know to be true about God's pursuing of lostness that God has put in, in all of our communities individuals who do not know Jesus. Are we actively pursuing them? Are we passively demonstrating a heart that is set against a culture 
It's really kind of hostile to God. I don't want to mix it up with them because I don't want to be too influenced by their negativity. May God help us not to be a grumbling Pharisee. May God help us to strategically, deliberately, intentionally engage lostness around us in your schools, in your communities, in your workplaces, wherever you might be. May God help us to shake off the pharisaicalism and press in to a heart that is pursuing lostness. May God give us the joy of seeing sinners come to repentance and the younger sons in this story of finding redemption as we're going to look at next week. Let me pray. Oh God, I pray you would tenderize our hearts. Help us to come to grips with our own lostness so that we have an affection, we have a desire of pursuing the lostness around us. May we not be indifferent. May we see eternity that's written on every heart, either spending eternity in heaven with you or spending eternity away from you in condemnation and hell. God, even this morning, as I was praying, just realizing that the end is near and how little urgency there tends to be in my own heart towards those around me who don't know you. God, I, forgive me. Forgive us as a people not to be indifferent about what you came to give your life for. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.